Uh, good morning. We're so glad you could join us. College students, welcome back. Great to have you guys. Great to have your energy in the church. Uh, my name is Sam, and uh, my wife Jill and I have been members of Providence Road for the past four and a half years. Uh, if you have a Bible handy, would you turn with me to the book of 1 John? 1 John chapter 2. And we're actually not going to be uh, spending the entire time in 1 John, but that's where we're going to jump off of this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, the, the verses obviously will be on the PowerPoint presentation uh, to my right and to my left. I would love if you used a physical Bible. I think that's a good practice to get into. I, I like it when people use physical Bibles. And if you don't have a physical Bible with you, you're more than welcome to use the Bibles, the paperback Bibles on the seat in front, or under the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at all, you're more than welcome to take that. Uh, honestly, we, we give that as a gift to you. We want to make sure everybody has a Bible who would want one. And so if you don't have a Bible, take one of those home with you. Um, so I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. I'm going to begin by addressing those in the room directly uh, who would not consider themselves Christ followers. What I mean by that is you, 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 you consciously and you knowingly have not uh, put your faith in Christ uh, to save you from your sins. You have, you have not surrendered yourself to his quick care. And uh, let me say on the outset, I have nobody specific in mind when I'm saying that. And I have no idea how many people in this room would, would fall under that category. If that is you, let me say on the outset, welcome. I'm so glad you are with us. This is a good place for you to be, and I, I want you to be here. Um, the second thing, though, is I, I feel like this morning uh, you've got a unique learning opportunity, if that, if that is you, if you're in that category. Uh, and so I want to prep you a little bit for how to uh, think about and approach what we're going to be talking about today. So this morning, what I'm going to be talking about is obedience. Uh, a, a Christian's responsibility to be obedient. So what I mean by that is that God in the Bible gives us instructions. He gives us commands uh, about how he wants us to live, how he wants us to approach him, our relationship with him, how he wants us to approach our relationship with other things, uh, and how he wants us to approach our relationships with people. Uh, and he expects Christians, his followers, to be obedient. Uh, and so what I'm going to be talking about is how Christians think about obedience. Uh, what priority we give it in our lives, um, how, reasons why Christians are obedient to God. And so if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, consciously, you know that you are, you are not. Uh, what I want you to do this morning is I, I want you to engage in something that we social scientists call participant observation. Uh, I'm a sociologist of religion. I work at the University of Oklahoma. Every semester I teach a class called Sociology of Religion. Uh, and in that class, every semester, what I have my students do is I have them visit a group of people uh, who are of a particular religion that they're not familiar with. Most of them can't or are forbidden from going to Christian churches. They have to go to like a Muslim service or a Jewish synagogue or a Hindu temple or a Baha'i temple or that kind of thing. You have to go to a religious service with people that you're unfamiliar with. And what I want you to do is I want you to engage in participant observation. I want you to observe, ask questions. I want you to get inside the minds of the people who worship there and to try to understand them. And so what I instruct them to do is to take copious notes. Uh, I want them to ask questions. I want them to think carefully about what kind of words are being thrown around. Uh, what kind of values do these people have? What are the, what are the concepts that seem to be important to them? Uh, and, and how do these people think, ultimately? And something I would, I would encourage you to go, I want you to do that this morning. I want you to, th to think about what you hear being talked about, and I want you to, to try to gain insight into uh, uh, how Christians think. Because what you're going to be doing is you're going to be eavesdropping this morning. You're going to be listening to one Christian talk to other Christians 
about something that is very near to the core of what it means to live a Christian life. And so I want you to learn from that experience. And so uh, something else I would encourage you to do, and something I ask my students to do, is I want them to cross-check their findings. When they, when they take these notes, when they're trying to think about how does this religious group, how does this, person, these, this group of faith, uh, how do they think about these things? What I want them to do is I want them to cross-check. I want you to, to take your notes, and I want you to, to think about what you're learning, and I want you to go to somebody there in that, in that group. And I want you to ask them, am I getting this right? This is what I feel like was communicated. Am I understanding this correctly? And I would, I would encourage you, if, if you're in that category, if you're willing to do that, talk to somebody who brought you this morning. Come down after the service and talk to me. I would love to hear about how you perceived what we were talking about today. And that is the idea of obedience. Church, let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. John says, and by this... We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now turn quickly, 1 John chapter 3. You're just going to flip a page. 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. John says again, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you give us uh, instruction. You expect us to obey, but it is for our good. Uh, it is so that we do not become ineffective. It is so that we do not deal with the consequences of those kinds of mistakes, that disobedience. It is so that we can know you better. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us in this time, uh, teach us how to, uh, become more obedient. Teach us uh, why we do that. And I pray that you would, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the truth of your word, transform us so that by the end of this time we have a better idea uh, and a, a clearer path forward on what it means to be obedient. We know how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So church, I have uh, I've kind of, I confess, I've gotten myself into it this morning. Uh, I, have, I have taken on a topic that, uh, that not only should be an entire sermon series, I mean, obedience, uh, if that is not a broad enough category. It's not only a broad topic, but it is also something that is, I think, a little bit heady. Uh, it, it requires a little bit of theological understanding and some nuance, and it's, it's even going to, I'm even going to introduce you to a little bit of moral philosophy here. Uh, but... I say that, I think we can do it, right? I just prayed for God to help us there, and so I believe he's going to empower us to do that. And so uh, it's going to take a little, bit a little bit of focus, but I think uh, you can go with me. So to make this easier, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the outline ahead of time. If you ever have heard me speak up here, you know that I do this. Uh, it's intentional. Uh, I do that because I, I want you, uh, if you, if you check out for a few minutes... Uh, or if you get lost, I want you to have a little bit of a roadmap for where Sam is going here. And so I'm going to give you three points, and this is what I'm going to hit this morning uh, so that you know where we're going. Point one, uh, obedience is expected. Not perfect, but not optional. Point two, motivations matter, but they're not the ultimate. And point three, I'm going to give you ten biblical reasons why we obey God. Now, obviously, we're going to have to fly through those. I'm not going to take as much time on the previous two points there. Uh, but that's, that's the outline, right? So if you can follow me, that's where we're going. Let's go for the first point. Obedience is expected. Not perfect, but not optional. 
Uh, before I dive in, let me be perfectly clear on what I am and am not saying, right? Uh, obedience does not make you a Christian. Hear that. Hear that now. Obedience does not make you a Christian. Neither does promising to obey God. Like, when you become a Christian, that is not you promising, like, God, have it your way. I'm going to try to do my very best from here on out, and that makes me a Christian. That is not what makes you a Christian. Nothing makes you a Christian except this, repentance and faith. What do I mean by that? So repentance means I, I, I acknowledge that the things that I'm looking, for, uh, looking to to save me, uh, my accomplishments professionally, my relationships, uh, my own morality, uh, my, my pleasure, whatever fulfills me, right? Like I, I acknowledge that those things are not saving me and I turn from those things, that's repentance, I turn from those things and I look to Christ in faith to give me all of those things, to save me. That is repentance and faith and that is what makes you a Christian. But what happens after that? What happens when you turn from those things that you were trying to save yourself with to Christ? What takes place? Is that just like a, a mental transformation? Is that just an acknowledgement? No, we actually believe the Bible teaches us that what happens there is nothing less than a transformation. Uh, it is somebody going from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, anyone who has, been, uh, who has put their faith in Christ is born again. Right? They were something and they're born as something else. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Romans chapter 8, Paul says that if we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit who will guide us into obedience. And so we don't believe that uh, that obedience makes you a Christian, but obedience is an indicator that you have truly had a life that has been transformed from the inside out, that the Holy Spirit lives in you now. Where am I getting this? Look back at 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. This is where we just uh, started. John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. By this. What's the indicator? If we keep his commandments. I mean, I love, actually, uh, I love 1 John. I encourage you to, like, dig into 1 John. It's one of my favorite Bible uh, uh, books of the Bible. Uh, I've memorized a lot of it, and the reason is because John is so raw. Like, he does not hold back. He shoots you straight. Uh, that's what I love. He, he doesn't speak in a whole lot of metaphor. He just gives it to you. So, verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know him. Probably a lot of people in America that say they know Jesus, right? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is what? A liar. A liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. So John isn't saying that we know Jesus because we keep his commandments. He's saying uh, keeping his commandments is an indicator that we know him. And the person who says, hey, I'm a Christian, right? Like lots of people on the campus of OU probably met a few folks that say, I'm a Christian. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in the church. This is, that really matters to me. And, but apparently has no desire to actually follow Christ, to obey them, uh, to keep his word. What is what, according to John? Is a liar. Is a big fat liar, right? Don't be so mean, John. Don't you, don't you realize? Like uh, whatever I say I am, I get to, I get to, I get to be, right? No, it's not, it doesn't work that way. John says... What you are is going to be manifested uh, from the inside out, right? Like somebody who has been transformed, who has crossed over from death to life is going to live differently. There is going to be some kind of indicator. Now, why is John saying it? Let's go to chapter 3, verse uh, 9. John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He doesn't say no one born of God sin, no, you know, no one born of God will ever sin again. He doesn't say that. He says no one born of God makes a practice 
of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because he has been born of God. So John says, uh, we've been born again. God's seed, the Holy Spirit, lives inside us. And so we're not just going to be the same after that. Like, you can't, you can't just be the same. You can't go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, a new person, and live exactly the same life with all the same values and all the same cares that you did beforehand. That person, that Christian, the person who has the Holy Spirit inside them would be miserable in such a state where they are constantly living in disobedience to God. It won't sit right with them. Right? And so uh, that kind of person has experienced an inward transformation. So what does this mean for us? Uh, let me just give you an extreme example, like somebody, somebody claiming Christ and yet giving no indication uh, of, of wanting to follow him in obedience. Uh, several years ago, more than a decade ago, in fact, I was, I was, uh, I was uh, working at a church in Dallas. And I was kind of a youth pastor, did some fill and, fill and preaching. It was just after seminary for me. And uh, I, uh, one of the, one of the, the music minister uh, was cheating on his wife. Um, and it, uh, it was, it was in, the woman was not in, uh, the woman he was cheating with was not in the church. And he, uh, he had done this before. In fact, he had actually moved to Dallas in a previous state. He had cheated on his wife with some lady. They moved away from that state uh, because to patch up their marriage and to try to get away from this woman. And he comes to Dallas. He starts working in the ministry again. And he, he does, engages in this behavior uh, all over again. And his wife uh, had busted him. And uh, to her credit and my amazement, uh, she wanted to stick it out. She wanted to work it out with him. She didn't want to, she had, he had three kids uh, with, his, with his, his wife and she, she didn't want to like end their family relationship that way. And so she really was trying to patch things up and make it work. So we confront him as a church staff. We confront him in the office and, uh, and we say we know and he confesses to it. He, he admits to it. Um, but after a few minutes of talking to this man, it became clear that he, he took no blame for any of it. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't see what he was doing was wrong at all. In fact, uh, he wasn't convicted by it. Uh, he, he thought he deserved this, right? Like, I deserve this as, as, as my ticket to happiness, right? Like, my shot, my chance at happiness. And, and his wife, it was all her fault, right? Like, and even though she wasn't abusive and he couldn't make any kind of legitimate claim to his wife being abusive and pushing him towards this, he would say, she didn't, she's just not meeting my needs as a man. And this woman does. And so what I'm going to do is, and he wasn't going to stop. He, he, was, he, was, he was going to leave his wife for this woman. And so here was my conversation. Obviously, he was going to leave uh, our church staff as the music minister. But here was my conversation because I was genuinely concerned with this man's spiritual state. I said, man, I, I don't know your heart. This is how I began it. I don't know your heart. I don't know what God is doing in here. And I can't. I can't know what God is doing. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's work in your life has been. But what I see is I see a complete lack of repentance for you doing something that is so obviously contrary to what God commands. No remorse. No conviction, no desire to stop. And again, this is between you and God, but I, I think you need to consider whether you don't just have a sin problem. I think you may have a salvation problem. Again, I don't know your heart, but I don't know, based on what I know of how the scripture teaches a Christian will act, will, will think, will feel, when they are in, in, in gross and consistent sin, I don't know how you could continue to do this to your wife, to your children, to this other woman, to the church, and not feel one shred of conviction about that. So again, I said, I, I, I don't know whether you just have a sin problem, brother. I think you may have a salvation problem. That's an extreme example. And, and the reason I use an extreme example is because I don't want us as a church to be going around judging one another and thinking about, uh, like, is this person, I see, I've seen them sin three times. 
It's pretty consistent, right? Like, it's pretty insensitive. I don't know. Is this person? I'm going to confront this person right now, right? Like, I, I don't think we ought to do that. That's not a good thing. Uh, that's why I use the extreme example. But this is my thought process, right? Like, when I see somebody, when somebody comes to me or somebody is confronted, and I see them blatantly in disobedience, contrary to what the Scripture teaches, and, uh, and they are unapologetically and remorselessly going to continue on in that, and cognitively, yeah, maybe they acknowledge like, yeah, okay, this is not according to what God tells us to do in the Bible. This is not how God wants us to live. But in here, I see uh, no conviction, no guilt, uh, no desire to stop. I would challenge them to consider whether it's not just a sin problem. It's a salvation problem. Now, does John expect perfect obedience? We got we to get there, right? So does John expect us to never mess up? And that, that question is not coming out of nowhere. There have actually been lots of Christian uh, denominations in the past, some Pentecostal holiness traditions, some other traditions that believe that Christians can either, when you become a Christian, you stop sinning, period. And so every time you sin, you actually have to like re-become a Christian. And there have been other uh, Christian traditions that teach you can, uh, you can achieve a state of spiritual perfection, that you can get to the point where your Christ-like character becomes so Christ-like that you just stop sinning forever. Is that what John is expecting here in this passage? That anybody who keeps on sinning in any kind of way is, is not a Christian, we need to call that out. That's not what he's saying. And he actually, this is, and this is why I want to bring you back to John, because in the, the very guy who just said anybody who makes a practice of sin cannot be in Christ uh, is also going to acknowledge that Christians are going to sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. John chapter 2, verse 1. He starts off, but he says, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians. If anyone does sin, we, has one, we have one who, who advocates with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So John says Christians will be characterized by obedience. An upward trajectory of obedience in their life as God continues to change them, to change their values, to change them spiritually, and to conform them more to Christ. But John also acknowledges uh, that Christians will make mistakes, that if we, and when that happens, if and when that happens, we have one that speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus' blood covers that. How else do we know that, that Christians are going to mess up, that Christians are going to sin? Think about what Jesus taught his disciples. Do you remember? Uh, he taught his disciples to pray. He says, when you pray, pray the following. Our Father who is in heaven, your name is holy. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and what? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus thought we would, his disciples, his followers would be sinning so often that whenever they pray, they should probably pray, God forgive me because I've been sinning, right? Like, and Jesus knows, Jesus knows his disciples will mess up. And so we constantly have to be asking God to forgiveness. So it's one thing to say our lives will be characterized by obedience. It's another thing to say Christ demands perfection of us, which is not true, right? So, uh, God wants us to be obedient. He doesn't just want us to be perfect, but he wants us to be following him. Now, that being said, what kind of obedience does Christ demand from us as Christians? What kind of obedience? Here's where we need to talk about motivations. Point two, motivation matter. Motivations matter to God, but they are not ultimate. Motivations matter to God, but they're not ultimate. The reason our motivations matter to God is because God wants our hearts. He doesn't just want us to, to kind of uh, go through a, a, a rote kind of routine of obedience for obedience's sake, even though obedience is important. We'll talk about that in a second. God wants, ultimately wants our hearts. Like as a father, I want my kids' hearts. I want my kids to be kind to one another. One, so that the, 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 you know, like they don't, I can't have them punching each other in the face. I can't have them stealing each other's things. I can't have them fighting all the time. There's a sense in which their obedience is just demanded, period. 
But there's another sense in which I want their hearts, I want them to be kind to one another. I want them to love one another. I want them to be decent people. I want them to be good citizens. And I would be very sad and dissatisfied if, it, if I came to find out that my kids were doing all of that stuff just because I was watching. Uh, that they didn't genuinely want to be kind. That they didn't genuinely want to be good citizens. That they gen genuinely didn't love other people. God demands the same from us. He wants the right motivations. But let me give you another example of just how this could work. Um, I think we could all agree that we are required, as Christians, to serve those who are less fortunate than us. Like, we are, we are required, demanded uh, of Christ by the epistle writers to serve those who are in need, who are poor, uh, who lack resources, uh, who don't have the good things that we have. It's demanded of us. And as a matter of fact, uh, Jesus and the epistle writers all say that this is kind of a good indicator of whether or not you're truly uh, in Christ. Uh, Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 25, he tells this story about how at the end of all things, God is going to separate the sheep from the goats. And who are the sheep? The sheep are the people who uh, saw those in need. They saw somebody in prison, sick, hungry, unclothed, and they tended to their needs physically. And who are the goats? The sheep, by the way, are the ones who go to heaven. <laughs> and the goats, on the other hand, the goats are on his left, and the goats are the people who saw those people in need and didn't do anything. Right? Like, didn't help them out, didn't serve them, didn't clothe them, uh, didn't feed them. Uh, and so Jesus says, that's how, this, that's how you're going to know, the people who are the sheep and the goats. James, I love the book of James. Just like John, he's so raw, he's so real. James says, whether somebody serves those in need physically, tangibly, is actually a good indication of whether or not somebody has live faith or dead faith. In James chapter 2, he says, what good is a faith without works? He says, if one of you sees somebody, if you see uh, somebody, a brother or sister, uh, without clothes and daily food, and you just say, hey, I, I wish you the best, keep warm, well fed, but you do nothing about their physical needs, what good is that faith? James says it's a dead faith. So we can all acknowledge that serving those who are in need is an act of obedience, and rejecting that is an act of disobedience, straight up disobedience. But Jesus actually points to this, serving the needy, serving the poor. He actually points to this as an example of how people can do this with the wrong motivations and the right motivations. Look at Matthew chapter uh, 6, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching his disciples. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, notice he said when, when you give to the needy, I sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I want to I just notice three things from this passage. One, Jesus says two times when you give. Not if you give, when you give. Giving to the needy, not optional, it's expected among Christians. So again, active obedience. Two, though, he says, who are the people who are being disobedient here? Or, or like in terms of their motivation, it's the people who give so that they can be seen by people. Now, is it a sin? Is it wrong to be seen by people doing good things? No, because earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus actually commands you to be seen. He says, uh, let your light shine before people so that they could see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. There's the key, right? Who gets the praise from people seeing that? It's God. And who gets the praise in what Matt, and Jesus is talking about serving the poor? These people do it for the eyes of others so that they can get the praise, so that they can get the worship. And Jesus says, if that's your goal, then that's what you get. 
right? You get the praise of people and that's it. You get no reward from God. So that's the second thing. The third thing, though, is what does, Je- what does Jesus say should actually motivate us? This fascinates me because Jesus is actually saying here that giving to the poor is not a completely selfless act. It's not something where I'm just kind of denial, denial, denial to myself. Jesus actually says we should pursue reward. He says we should be motivated by that, right? At the very end, he says, if you give, when you give, and nobody sees it, nobody thanks you, and nobody gives you credit, nobody applauds you, but God sees you, and you did that only because you knew God was watching, and he was the only one who saw it, then God who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus promises that. There is promised blessing from obedience, but it requires faith, not what you get immediately from other people. So we're going we're gonna to come back to this idea in, in terms of reasons why, legitimate biblical reasons why we obey God. So our motivations matter to God. He doesn't want us to be Pharisees. He doesn't want us to be hypocrites. He wants us to do things with proper motivations in mind. But that being said, motivations aren't ultimate. So why do I say that? Well, let's think about a situation in which... Uh, you're commanded, you're, you are explicitly commanded to do something that is good. It's an act of obedience. And yet, while you're doing it, you realize that my motivations are not good. So, like, you're, you're supposed to serve the poor. You're supposed to serve the needy. And you're doing that. Maybe you're serving in a soup kitchen. Maybe you're handing out money. Maybe you're helping somebody get some uh, food. Maybe you're giving them a job. And you realize, you know what? I'm doing this because people are watching. Right? Do you then not do it? Because, well, God wouldn't want me to be hypocritical, Right? Like, God wouldn't want me to be hypocritical, so maybe I should just not do this. Maybe I should take a break, not help this person, because my motivations are corrupted, and so it corrupts the whole thing. I would say no. I would say you always do the obedient thing. Whatever God explicitly has commanded you to do, you do that motivations or not. Why do I say that? Because uh, the goodness of our actions, the goodness of our, our steps to kind of walk in obedience isn't determined ultimately by our motivations. Motivations matter to God, but it's not the ultimate. What is the ultimate? Uh, let me give you an example from moral philosophy. So if you can handle this for a second, stay with me. If not, check out for the next five minutes. Just go to sleep. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Plato. Uh, Plato uh, talks, always writes about his, his mentor Socrates. And he describes dialogues between Socrates and various people who are trying to trip Socrates up. And, and in one of his books, Plato describes a conversation between Socrates and a guy named Euthyphro. Uh, it's a funny name. I'm not going to try to spell it. So Euthyphro and Socrates are going at it. And Euthyphro is trying to trip Socrates up. And he poses a question about God and goodness. And he asks uh, uh, Socrates, Euthyphro asks Socrates, he says, is an action good because God commands it? Or does God command good actions because he is aware of some kind of ultimate goodness that the action has? Let me give you a concrete example. So uh, he's, giving, he's giving two options. Uh, is, is being merciful to people only good because God commands us to be merciful? Like that's what makes it good? Or does God command us to be merciful because God knows that mercy is objectively good even if God is not there? There's some kind of like external law to God that says mercy is good. Now, before you answer in your head, you probably already jumped to an answer what you think is the right one. You need to realize that however you answer this, there's a dilemma. It poses a problem for you, and that's why philosophers have called this Euthyphro's dilemma. Because if you answer with option two, you know, God commands what is good because there's some kind of a external goodness that God is uh, beholden to, then God isn't really God. He's not the ultimate, right? Like, he, he doesn't... Uh, create goodness. Goodness doesn't come from him. God just kind of conforms to goodness and then commands, why do I even need God? So that's a problem. God is not God on option two. But in option one, God isn't necessarily good. He's just all powerful, right? Like if mercy is good just because God happened to command that, 
then how does, that, how does that work for all these other things like justice, forgiveness, compassion, love, mercy? Are those things good just because God happened to command us to exercise those kinds of things? Uh, well, what if, what if God just changed his mind? What if tomorrow God says, you know what? Murdering innocent people is the good thing. Uh, mercy is evil. It's wicked. Uh, and murdering innocent people, that's the most righteous thing. It's the most godly, most moral, most good thing you can do. If you want to be obedient to me, you've got to murder innocent people. How would that sit? Is that, is, is that, is that okay to say that, that goodness is really arbitrary and just however God wanted to uh, call it at that moment is, is, is kind of what we're stuck with? So in this situation, God is not God. In this situation, God isn't good. He's just all-powerful, and whatever the biggest guy in the room says goes. How do we get out of this problem? as Christians. Where does goodness come from in the ways that we live and in, in action? Well, Christian philosophers have said that neither one of those options is a live option. What they've said is that goodness ultimately comes from God's nature, his character. And so God always commands what is good. Goodness, an action is good, in other words. An action, what we do, showing mercy is good. Not just because God commands it and not because it's some kind of uh, objective goodness that's external to God. Mercy is good because it conforms to God's unchanging character. His nature. In other words, mercy is good, love is good, forgiveness is good, compassion is good because God is merciful. God is just. God is compassionate. He is forgiving. And so God will always, always, always command what is consistent with his nature. And that is what all creation is supposed to do. We are supposed to reflect God's nature, his character. And so when I exercise mercy, when I give to those in need, when I show compassion, when I show Kindness. There are two levels in which we can analyze this. In one level, uh, we can think about like what I am doing for myself and within myself, and that's where we're talking about the level of motivations. But there is a whole other level in which whatever I'm doing, if I'm showing compassion, whether or not I'm doing it because people are watching, compassion is shown. Love is shown. Somebody is fed. Somebody is sheltered. Somebody is clothed. Somebody is shown kindness. And that reflects God's nature. God reflects God's character. And so whenever I don't have the proper motivations, I need to keep in mind do it anyways, because God deserves this, right? Like, I want to reflect God's nature by my obedience. Okay, so motivations matter. They matter to God, and God wants us to be motivated by the right biblical reasons to obey Him. And yet, even when I'm not motivated that way, I should do it anyway, right? Because it's the right thing. Because that activity, that thing that God has commanded me to do, reflects God's nature at His very core, because God is that way. Does that make sense? You follow me? Okay? Okay. Uh, let's go to three. Point three, ten biblical reasons why you should obey God. Now, uh, before I start listing these, I just want to explain why I'm doing this. Um, maybe it would be easier and cleaner uh, just to say, like, here's the one reason why you should obey God. Uh, you know, this, just keep this one in mind. You should always obey God for this reason. I don't want to do that one because it's, it's not biblical. The Bible gives us lots of good reasons to obey God. Uh, like I said, these are biblical reasons. These are like backed by Scripture, that reasoned by Jesus and the apostles. This is why we should obey God, right? Like he gives us lots of reasons. So there isn't just one uh, silver bullet reason why we should obey God. Now we could probably talk about like a preference hierarchy in terms of which one is like maybe the one that God likes better. But at the end of the day, all of these are legitimate biblical reasons that I, I, I want you to keep in mind. So... Here's what I'm going to do. I, I, I want to, the reason I'm giving you this is I want to give you ammunition. Uh, I want to give you resources for those times when you don't feel like obeying God. For those times when you want to do the selfish thing. You want to do everything in you. You know what's right to do. And everything in you says, I want to do it my way. I, I don't want to do the kind thing. I want to do it selfishly. I want, to, I, I want to go my own way here. I want you to think about these 10 biblical reasons. 
uh, and I, I want you to use this as ammunition and motivation so that you can keep being obedient. So what I'm going to do, and here's what I want you to do. What I'm going to do is I'm going to list 10 reasons, 10 biblical reasons, and I'm not going to proof text you to death. I'm not just going to read a bunch of verses. I will, I will cite the reference next to these reasons. And I will briefly mention like what these references say. Uh, I'm not going to read through each one of them, and so we're going to have to go through this quickly. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to have on each slide, I'm going to have the 10 reasons listed in list, list form. It's all going to fit on one slide. And after this is over, at the end of this, not after this is over, but at the end of this, I'm going to give you a chance. And what I want you to do is I want you to take your phone out. All of you have one. Uh, and I want you to take a shot of this. I want you to take a picture of what's on that PowerPoint slide. Uh, I want you to see those 10 reasons, and I want you to get a picture of it. And, and here's what I challenge you to do for just January. Just do this for January. Do this for me. Do this for God. Do this for whatever. It's a discipline. New Year's, call it a New Year's resolution. Whatever. We're a little late. Uh, but here's what I challenge you to do. What I want you to do is I want you to take that picture of these 10 reasons, and I want you to put that as your lock screen for January. Right? You're going to have, because every time, this is what I see on my lock screen, right? I want every time, studies show that you look at your phone 80 to 100 times. There's college uh, kids in this room, so probably 1,000 times uh, uh, a day. So like, whenever you pull out that phone and you see that lock screen, I want you to see 10 biblical reasons why I should obey God. And I want you to use that as a resource. So let's fly through these and we're going to uh, uh, talk about it. Now again, I can't spend a lot of time on them. I'm just going to mention them and mention the reference and kind of uh, briefly touch on those. Uh, reason number one that I want to obey God is that I truly desire what Christ desires. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says that we, our minds should be transformed. They should be renewed. And this is really the, 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 the I would say if there is a, a, a best reason to obey God, it is this reason and it's the reason that doesn't require reasons. Uh, what I mean by that is, is when I, uh, I truly desire what Christ desires, that is the goal, right? Like I, I want to do this. Not, I don't want to talk myself into obedience. I want to love and show compassion and forgive and be merciful and be just because I truly want to. That God has transformed me and I just really want those things now. Like I don't have to talk myself into it. I don't have to cite verses to myself. I genuinely just want to be loving to my spouse. I genuinely just want to be kind to my children. And I want to be compassionate. I want to be merciful, right? Like and, and so I want to obey because I desire what Christ desires. That's the goal. I mean, this is the highest kind of level, right? Like this is number one. That's why I put it number one. Reason number two, I want to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, everything you do, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Uh, we want to do everything for the glory of God. Here's an example of how this could work in practice. Uh, sharing your faith is hard. Uh, it's difficult. And sometimes uh, we're required to, God gives us opportunities to share our faith with people that we may not have a lot of compassion for. Uh, I have, uh, I, I used to, when I was in college, I used to do beach evangelism. And we used to go to Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, and, uh, and we would go out on the beach sharing the gospel with, with bikers and, you know, college students on spring, or not spring break, but like over there for the summer, and people that I didn't necessarily have a lot of compassion for, like maybe I didn't like them a lot, maybe I didn't feel like, oh man, I just want to see this person come to know the Lord. In some of those moments, the only time that actually got me through and got me motivated to share the gospel with that person was the desire that God should be glorified. Like, God demands worshipers, and those people, God deserves that person, God deserves that person, He deserves glory from that person. And so the only thing that kept me motivated was to say, God deserves glory. And so I'm going to glorify God right now by sharing the gospel with these people that I don't necessarily have a lot of love for. Uh, and so in those moments where I don't feel like obeying God, I, I could say, God gets the glory. God's going to get the glory. And this is what I'm going for here. Reason three, I don't want to, this is really the flip side of, of, the, of the second one. 
I don't want to dishonor God and ruin my witness uh, for him. Hebrews 6, 6 really is a passage that just talks about how, how professing Christians who persistently live in disobedience, it, say, it says they subject Christ to public disgrace. Right? Jesus was disgraced on the cross. And when we sin against him and people know that, uh, we are subjecting Christ to further disgrace. Uh, think about all of what I just even talked about, like with this music minister uh, running off with this lady, leaving his wife, right? Like, think about how, the, how that kind of thing uh, has, has affected the impact of the gospel in the city, right? Like, uh, think about the damage that it does to the church's reputation when the pastor runs off with the church secretary, when, uh, when there's some kind of money issue, uh, there where there's like embezzlement, or just even when average Christians who profess Christians and everybody knows they're a Christian, doesn't, and when they don't act like Christians, right? And, and think about how that subjects Christ to public disgrace. I don't want to do that. I love Christ. He saved me. And so I want to be motivated by the idea of, I don't want to ruin my witness. I don't want to dishonor him. Reason four, I don't want to grieve God with disobedience. Ephesians 4.30, Paul talks about how uh, he tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit with, he gives a list of all the things that, there's disobedience basically. Careless with our speech, bitter, slanderous, uh, wrathful, failing to have compassion on one another. In other words, disobedience grieves God. It grieves the Holy Spirit. And if I'm a follower of Jesus, why would I want to grieve God? I don't want to grieve God. That could be motivating for me to, to avoid that sin. Reason number five, I want the peace and joy that comes from obedience. Ephesians, uh, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul is wrapping up his message to the Philippians and he says that if you put into practice the things I have taught you, the God of peace will be with you. He offers that the God who gives peace is going to be with you if you put these things into practice. There's going to be a subjective feeling of peace when I know I've been obedient. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Right? So Jesus did what was hard. He obeyed when it was difficult. Why? For the joy set before him. And so there is a promise of a subjective feeling of peace, of joy, satisfaction, that I did what was right, that I obeyed God even when I didn't want to. And I want that. I want that to motivate me. Reason number six, I want to receive God's promised blessing for, from obe for obedience. Matthew 6, verses uh, 1 through 4, this is what, a passage we've already gone over. This is probably the motive. Uh, this is the motive, okay? So in the Gospels, this is the motive that is most often mentioned by the gospel writers and Jesus himself as to why we should obey God. And it's this idea of promise reward. John Piper, uh, pastor in Minneapolis, uh, calls this the promise of future grace uh, that should motivate obedience. It's the idea that God says, if you follow him, if you follow him in faith, if you are obedient, there is a promised reward for that kind of thing. Uh, I just used Matthew 6. This is what we've already covered, 6, 1 through 4. Why did Jesus say we should give to the needy? Is it because we should just be completely selfless? No, Jesus actually says you should be motivated by the fact that if you do this and nobody gives you credit, nobody paid you in this life, know that God will pay you back, right? Like know that God will give the reward. And we can be, Jesus used that to say we should be motivated by this idea of heavenly reward, promised blessing that God gives to those who are disobedient, even when we didn't get the payment in this life. So uh, number seven, I want to respond to the grace that God shows me in the gospel. Obviously, one, also one that is commonly mentioned, especially in Paul. Uh, Paul mentioned this often. I'll just give you an example. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, uh, Therefore, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So why do I as a Christian give my body to God for Him to use as He wills? 
it's in view of his mercy, right? It's because God has shown me mercy. God has shown me grace. He's shown me kindness, and I want to respond to that. I'm not trying to pay God back. I'm not trying to fill in the debt. Uh, I'm saying I'm responding to the grace that God has shown me, and that will, be, that will help me drive my obedience. Uh, reason number eight, we're wrapping up. I want to avoid God's discipline for disobedience. I want to, I straight up, I just want to avoid God's discipline. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, talks about how God disciplines his children as a, as a good and loving father disciplines his, his children. Right? Like God is a good and loving father who will discipline us. Uh, it's difficult to say, what, like, what is God's discipline? Like, God hasn't told me, like, audibly, I'm disciplining this for you. But sometimes I have felt God's discipline, and, and this is the way I have felt it. It usually comes in the form of God taking away or smashing idols in my life uh, so that I could realize this is what I was putting my hope in, right? Like, if it's been a relationship, if it's been a, a professional goal, if it's been some kind of thing, like material thing that I loved more than God, uh, God has loved me enough to discipline me in the way that he removed it from my life, that he smashed it in front of me. And I had to deal with the pain of that loss of, of, of those things so that I could wake up. It was for my good. It was so that I could wake up and realize, you know what, I, I, had, I had made this into an idol, right? And God was, was, was showing me that. I want to avoid that discipline. I want to avoid that pain of God having to rip that out of my life. How? Well, it's by maintaining a proper order of my affections, right? Like, I, I want to put God first always, and I want to subject everything in my life under Him. That's an act of obedience. And so when I do that, uh, I, I eliminate the need for God to continually discipline me in a way that is going to hurt. Uh, reason nine, I want to avoid the immediate consequences of sin in my life. I've just cited there all of Proverbs, just all of Proverbs, uh, because that is the whole point of Proverbs, right? Like, if, if avoiding the immediate consequences of sin is not a good motivation, if, not, if that's some kind of mercenary thing, then just rip Proverbs right out of your Bible because that is the whole point of Proverbs is God is giving you commands and sometimes obeying his commands is just an act of wisdom. It's a way that we can live strategically and live well. And so God uh, says that those people who disobey his commands in Proverbs, he calls those people fools. And in Proverbs, you always see fools dealing with the consequences of their bad behavior, of their disobedience. I want to avoid those consequences. Uh, I want to uh, not speed, you know, because I don't want the ticket, right? Like, and that's a good motivation. I don't want the ticket. I don't want the immediate consequence of foolish living. And so I apply Proverbs, and that's a good reason. Reason number 10, here's where we end. I want to build on the Christ-like character that God is developing in me. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, sorry, it's, that's, that's a wrong reference. Uh, yep, sec, there it is, that's the right reference. Check, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Peter tells us that we should consciously, he says, make every effort to add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. And he says, so he describes this picture of us continually growing in our Christ-likeness, and we're adding these things progressively as we are partnering with God to sanctify ourselves, right? Like we are growing by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to grow in my character that God is developing in me. And every time I sin, every time I engage in willful disobedience to God, every time I, I, I see what God tells me to do and I go the other way consciously, I'm taking a step back in a way that I don't want to do. I want to continue to build on the character that God is building in me. I want to grow. I don't want my life to be characterized by two steps forward, one step back. I want to increase in Christ-like character. And so sometimes we could be motivated to obey just by the fact that I don't want to move back in this. 
Right? Like, I don't want to go backwards. I want to move forward to become the kind of man that Christ wants me to be. Uh, and so that could be motivating. Now, here's where you get your phone out. I already see you guys moving. Here's where you get your phone out. And here's where you take your shot. So you got 10 reasons. You got 10 biblical. Now, again, this isn't just like my philosophy on life. These are straight from the Bible. 10 biblical reasons why you should obey God. And if you are willing to do this with me, I'm going to do this as well. If you're willing to do this with me, just month of January, you can go and put your friends back on your lock screen or your kids or whoever, right? Like after January, I got my kids on my lock screen currently, right? So I will do this with you, but I want you so that we can make steps toward internalizing this and memorizing this kind of motivation that, bi that the Bible gives us. Put it as your lock screen on your phone. In the 80 to 100 to 1,000 times you look at your phone every day, I want you to see this list. I want, to I want you to remember, here is why I obey God. From the Bible, straight from the Bible itself. And hopefully God can continue to move us and develop us in Christ-like characters. We become more like, more like Him. Let's pray to close. Uh, God, we're so grateful that uh, you in the Bible give us lots of great reasons to obey you. And these are convincing. God, uh, as I was... Uh, looking these up and reading through these, and I, I was just amazed that, uh, that there are so many good reasons that you give us of why we should do what you say, why we should uh, follow your path, even when it, it doesn't feel like it, in the, I don't feel like it in the moment, or I feel like I want to go a different direction, I want to do the selfish thing. Uh, God, I want to obey you. We want to obey you. Um, God, thank you for teaching us uh, about obedience and the expectation that, that we, are, uh, we are under as Christians to obey you, to follow you. Um, thank you for uh, helping us understand. Please continue to conform our motivations to the ones that you want us to have. And when we don't have the right motivations, I pray that we would call out to you in prayer. While we're doing the right thing, we would call out to you in prayer and say, God, help me fix my motivations. Help me do this for the right reason. And God, I pray that we would be able to, uh, with greater success, apply the biblical motivations that you give us to walk with you in faithfulness. God, may we be a church that is characterized by Christ's likeness. May we give you glory. Uh, may we uh, spare ourselves the consequences of our sin. Uh, may we respond to your grace appropriately. May we receive the promised blessing uh, both here and in the life after that you give, uh, that you promise us for obedience. We want to take hold of all of those promises, God, and so I pray that you would uh, help move us towards that further. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.